Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh shared his dreams. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. When he says, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. 
for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. The word of the Lord. We are at the penultimate week in our summer and fall in the book of Genesis. So we're continuing to look at the book of Genesis. And we are in week two of looking at the story, the specific narrative of Joseph. And there's a lot of things we could do as we look at the story of Joseph. One thing we could do today is we could trace how, how Joseph is a Christ figure, prefiguring and foretelling what God does in Jesus Christ. Think about even this one. Um, on the night before, or the kind of the story before he gets elevated, he is in a prison and he's interpreting the dreams of a cupbearer and a baker. So somebody who does wine and somebody who does bread. But he stays in the pit. And then eventually he's raised to the right hand of the throne and every knee bows to him. Hmm. Right? But we're not going to talk about that today. We could also talk about the narrow story, which is what we've been doing a lot. The narrow story meaning just tracking Genesis 41 or 42, 43. And there's some amazing stuff about how Joseph gets elevated and what that implies about his life story. And specifically, the whole interactions that he has with his brothers when they come back to the land of Egypt. It's fascinating. It's brilliant. It's amazing stuff to dig into. And it's a part of something else we could talk about, which is the grand narrative of Genesis and how it sets up what God is doing in all of history. It's the story of God's plan to choose and make a people through Abraham and his line, and Joseph is bringing about their redemption through what happens in his exile time in Egypt himself. But this morning, what I want to dig into is almost like a side story, a, a rabbit trail, if you would. It's about Joseph's career, his actual job, and what God has to say about work, including our work. There was a massive, comprehensive Gallup study done in 2015 that was called What the Whole Wide World Wants, and this is what the summary of that was, is our world poll across 160 countries found that over the past 100 years, the great global dream has changed from wanting peace, freedom, and family to simply wanting to have a good job. People no longer are as primarily concerned about food security or shelter or about love and romance or family or even about freedom. It's the primary thing that people today are concerned about is a good job. And my guess is if you work full-time or more than part-time, that your job and your work is so central to where your brain goes, your anxieties, the things you're thinking about all the time. And it's a part of who you are. So this morning, what I want to do as we look at Genesis 41 is specifically to look at what God says about work, which we looked at actually earlier this summer when we were in Genesis 1 and 2, then look at Joseph's work, his career, and what it says, and how it's living out God's work plan, and then ultimately what it says about our work, your work, the careers, the jobs, the work that you have in life. So the first thing we have is Genesis 1. Genesis 1, what we get in the very beginning is in the beginning, Right? So it says, in the beginning, God. And then the next word that we get is God doing something. He's making something. He's building something. But unlike us, where we have all the Legos and we build the ship, he takes nothing and makes something. He creates the universe, the world as we know it. 
And one of the things that's really amazing is the, the wording in Genesis 1 is, is that God hovers over the chaos. It's kind of darkness and void and chaos, and he brings order to the chaos. It's a part of the creative work that God is doing. And then he creates a world, a world that we inhabit, a world of order and beauty and fruitfulness. And the reason he does so, we talked about this in Genesis 1 and 2, the reason he does so is out of a relational sharing. God is a relational being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He creates out of an overflow of that Trinitarian eternal love in order to birth creatures who bear his image and share relationally with him in the goodness and love of the Trinity. You and I enjoy God and this creation as we live out God's design and intention for us in this creation. And his intention for us, regardless of whether you believe in this God or not, is laid out in Genesis 1 when humanity enters the scene in what is called the cultural mandate, God's plan for all people and the work that we are all called to. We read this in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over everything. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, here's your jobs, all, all humanity. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything again. In Genesis 2, the parallel account it says that God takes the man and puts him in the garden that he created in order to keep it, to tend it. Puts him in the garden to work it and keep it. He's also a scientist, biologist, naming animals. He's also vocationally a husband, and eventually a father. But to work and to keep it. And what he is calling Adam into and humanity into Adam and Eve and humanity and all of us, is to take the world around us and carry on his work of creation through our work. One of the things that Andy Crouch in his uh, book from 2008, Culture Making, said is, a garden is not just nature. Note that. A garden is not just nature. A garden is nature plus culture. Culture is what we as humanity do when we make sense of the world around us. We make sense of the world and we're developing culture. A garden is not a wasteland, it is not a wilderness, it is not a jungle. It is intentionally ordered for beauty and fruitfulness. So the apple trees are more fruitful. So the flowers stand in just such a way at certain seasons for beauty. That order creates beauty and fruitfulness. And a theology of work begins with that sense of what God did and what he called us into. It's for us to carry on that work of taking uh, chaos and bringing order. It's removing weeds, right? Like that's tend the garden. It's creating structures for beauty and for fruitfulness. And in a sense, like you could almost use a word like justice to talk about order, taking chaos and bringing order, things as they should be in their right place. And as you do so, you create beauty. It says that Adam and Eve were in the garden and they saw everything was beautiful. It tasted good. 
Enjoy, God says. Enjoy the beauty of this creation. In awe and joy, in life to the full. God is a generous and loving God. He's sharing his beauty of creation and wants you to enjoy it. He says, and then be fruitful. He wants everything to be fruitful. And you know, one of the, the amazing things is I think in the original intention of the Garden of Eden, theologians have talked about this, it was not just for Adam and Eve to stay in this garden. It's, it was kind of a, a garden, a, a place, Eden, located between here and here, and now tend the garden and also have children and fill the earth. If they had not fallen in sin, the intention would have been to fill the earth with image bearers who are taking that garden, and, you know, they could have gotten to the edge of the garden and been right, right there's wilderness, but if they kept tending the garden, all of a sudden that wilderness would be more garden until the whole earth was the Garden of Eden, filled with image bearers of God, carrying out his co-creative purposes for us. The theology of work is about taking chaos and bringing order for beauty and fruitfulness. It's what theologians summarize as flourishing, human flourishing, harmony, wholeness, thriving, shalom. God wants us to be at peace, with ourselves, with one another, with the creation, and with Him. And in our work, the work that we do in our homes, in our schools, in our places of business, our calling is to make life as it was intended to be before the fall in the work that we do. To put it simply, we are created to work. Before the fall, before the fall, God says, Here's a job for you. Before the fall, God created us in his image, and the way that we do that is we carry on the work of creation. All work, therefore, all work is good. With a minor caveat that if you are murdering people or creating crime or selling drugs or any of the things that you could kind of put in that category, that's not good work. Okay. So aside from breaking the Ten Commandments, all work is good work and equally good. And when I say equally good, I mean that. Jesus said to the centurion whose servant he healed, go, your servant is healed. He didn't say, and stop being a soldier for the Roman army. He was a soldier. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, wee little man, right? But Jesus doesn't call him to no longer be a tax collector. He's still a tax collector. Roman soldier, tax collector, were not ideal jobs in kind of a godly way of talking about things, but they were to go and do them well. Dorothy Sayers, a novelist and a Christian thinker from the previous century, wrote almost 80 years ago an essay on work, a famous essay on work in which she says, the secular vocation is sacred. And then she goes on to slam pastors and priests in her day and age for holding up the role and the job of the pastoral ministry, the priestly ministry, the missionary work as better and more sacred than a small business owner, than finance, than working in the government. Like, if you really want to be godly, you have to be a collared person. And I want you to hear that. There is no difference in God's view of the careers that we're called into between me and you. You and I are on the same page. We are called into specific work to carry out God's purposes for us, given the agency that we have, the abilities that we have, the opportunities we have, and during a season of life. 
And there is literally no difference hierarchy in God's view of things between being the missionary, the priest, and the tax collector or soldier. We are called to participate in what God is doing in this world, in his work as maker and Lord. And in that sense, whatever job we have, we are called to bring order, to look for beauty, to create fruitfulness and flourishing. And you could do this in jobs that you don't get paid for. Like when I mow the grass, what I'm doing is taking the chaos of my yard and making it more orderly so it has more beauty and to create better flourishing for my neighborhood so they're not angry at me. When you change a diaper, you are taking chaos and bringing order. You're taking not beauty and making beauty again. And it's at least the flourishing of the baby and probably our, you know, senses. We are designed to be culture makers, people who take the raw products of this world and our raw giftingness and make sense of this world. And it is the difference between fire, which is kind of raw material, and a fireplace, which is culture. It's the difference between an egg and an omelet. When we do work of making a fire in the fireplace, it is not chaotic and dangerous. It is beauty and warmth and flourishing. And an egg just by itself, unless you're Gollum, is not as beautiful and fruitful as an omelet. So how does all of that lay the groundwork for how we see what God is doing through Joseph when he does his work. So just as a reminder of Joseph and, and the story, we talked about it last week. In Genesis 37 and 39 and even into 40, Joseph ends up in Egypt and he is a slave in Potiphar's house. But because of the work that he does, and he's so excellent at his work, he's elevated to steward, house steward or manager of the family business. And not only that, when he is falsely accused and thrown into prison, he doesn't just wallow there in anger and bitterness from being falsely accused. He works. And while he's working in there, the warden notices his work and says, this guy is excellent. He's excellent at the organizational stuff that I'm not great at. And he elevates him to be basically the manager of the entire prison system. And then eventually, when he finally gets out, he gets out first because he interprets a dream by the inspiration of God Almighty. And what he's doing in that is actually financial forecasting. He's forecasting, hey, Pharaoh, I heard your dream, and I'm going to tell you what God's going to do. Seven years bull market, followed by seven years of bear market. Let's prepare. He has a plan. Let's, let's reread. Trudy did a great job of that, but let's reread verses 33 to 36. He says to Pharaoh, boldly, he's standing there, you know, as a guy that's been in prison for years, he's a slave in a foreign country, he says to Pharaoh, the king, the emperor, now Pharaoh, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to take overseers, appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store them up and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. So he has a plan. Have a guy in charge, 
have regional managers and overseers, create a taxation system where 20% of the grain is kept, and then have a way of storing it so that you can redistribute all of this grain when the years of famine come. And Pharaoh's like, he's standing there probably with all of his courtiers, all the guys that are like his administration. He's like, I got nothing from you guys. I got this slave out of prison, and he gives me wisdom. You guys are all fired. All right, you're second in command now. And what he does with Joseph, as we read in the verses that follow, is that he puts a ring on his fingers, or on his finger. He puts a linen cl- clothing on him, robe. So he's being re-robed. Robe got stripped from him earlier, right? He's being re-robed. He gets a gold chain, and he gets to ride around in the like Air Force Two chariot. Now, as we read this, our natural reading of it is like he gets new threads, he gets bling, and he gets a ride, and it's pretty great. Like, look at how flashy he looks right now. But what we're supposed to see here is actually all of those things were symbols of his new authority and his office. It was like a job title. Like, all of that stuff said his job title. This is the vice president. This is actually literally the prime minister was the term that they used. There's an Egyptian language term that's used of him here which is essentially equivalent to a prime minister today. These are the symbols of his authority and office. And then we read about Joseph's work in verses 46 and following. Now, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's 30 when he becomes prime minister. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, And he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, till he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Now think about Joseph's resume. When he gets to the end of his life, what would you say Joseph had done in actual work terms? His resume would have included this if you looked at over the course of his life. He developed financial forecasts, including budgeting and strategy for years to come. He managed operations, logistics, acquisitions. He oversaw construction, grain production and grain storage. He established tax policy and grain prices and trade agreements. And he had to learn these things. You don't just know about these things. He had to learn and master agriculture, legislation, communication with the entire country and with his extended staff, transportation, construction techniques, economics, how to run payroll, exchange rates, HR practices, and even real estate. If you look at Joseph's titles or the jobs that he does, if he was in a government administration today, he would currently hold 11 of the 15 cabinet seats. And if he was in a modern company of any sort, he would be CFO and COO, just under the president's CEO, Pharaoh. But why does he have all this, and what is he doing in all of this? He's actually, it's the question of this, how does he work? So he does all of these jobs that are very, the kinds of jobs many of you have. But think about how he does them, and it's, it's a play on how we should be doing anything that we have, whether it's changing a diaper or managing a major company's financial forecasts. The first thing is, he's competent. He actually does his job well. That's why Potiphar elevates him. The warden elevates him. 
He's trustworthy and excellent at the work that he does. He's not cut corners. He doesn't quietly quit. He works hard. He's also wise and discerning. That's partly a gift of his, but he also recognizes that all wisdom comes from the Lord. And I think you have to see that even in a very uh, kind of financial or HR or, you know, you're, you're dealing in real estate acquisitions, all these things that he's doing here, kind of a government job, God can give insight into the work. The Holy Spirit does work, and God can give unique insight. Does God know everything? Think God knew how to split an atom long before everyone figured it out 100 years ago? Yeah. Think God can work in your creative mind, give you insight in how to do your job? Yeah. Joseph knew that. Jamie Winship is a Christian speaker who in the past was a missionary and before that a CIA agent, I think, or something like that, and then before that was a police officer. In his early days as a police officer in Maryland, he would seek the Lord in his police work, and he said in the very early days, he came across a, in a, something that was really horrible, and it was they were, went to an elementary school because a kid on his way home went missing, walking home from school. And when he got there, he's there with his partner, and he's talking to, Jamie was talking to the parents of the kid, and, and for some reason he said this. He said, don't worry, we'll find him. You should never do that if you're a police officer. They never say that. They teach you early on. And the, his partner's like, you idiot, why did you say that? He goes, I don't know. I was just seeking the Lord. That came out. It, he didn't say I was seeking the Lord. He just said, I don't know. Like, but he gets in his own squad car, the partner's in another car, and he's driving, down a road in Maryland, and a car's coming towards him, and he's about to vomit. It's like, Lord, I, I need to know where this kid is. You know where this kid is. I don't know where this kid is. He's about to vomit as this car comes towards him. So he spins his car around, puts on his lights, pulls the car over, and says, open the trunk, and the kid was inside. Was that his wisdom or the Lord's? Was it good police work? Can God give insight that you don't have? Yeah. God gave insight to Joseph that was not natural to him. And maybe he'll never do it again. He interpreted these dreams, but maybe, you know, it happened twice, but maybe never again. God can solve engineering problems or help you to make the most of your limited resources in ways that you just can't imagine or haven't read about in a book. Ultimately, Joseph is dependent on the Lord, and we see that. He's doing what Colossians talks about when you work Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart is working for the Lord and not for men. And, and he kind of acknowledges that. But he's not just working for God. He's also working for the good of all the people. In Potiphar's house, he's working for the good of Potiphar, his slave owner, person, and his family. In a prison, he's working for the good of all the prisoners and the warden. And in Egypt, he's working for the Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians. He's not seeking his own advancement. It doesn't seem like he is. It just happens. Nor is he exploiting his positions just for his own good. The Theology of Work Project had an article on Joseph and his work, and it said this, his primary interest seems to be getting the job done for others rather than taking personal advantage of his new position. And lest we think too much of what Joseph is doing here is a part of God's purposes and all that, and it's all this great stuff. Remember what Egypt is and who Pharaoh is, okay? So the Pharaoh in this story, 
in, in the end of Genesis does acknowledge God. He acknowledges the God that Joseph talks about when he kind of interprets the dream and gives him wisdom. And he does elevate Joseph, who is one of God's chosen people. So he, he does some things that are good. Um, but Egypt at that time was a polytheistic superpower. It was the most powerful nation in the world, and it was pagan and idolatrous. It was not a philanthropo, you know, it, it was not a like, it was not the lamb center, okay? This is Egypt. This is not a, a beneficent, you know, kind of benevolent nonprofit doing amazing stuff in the world. It's Egypt. Its king is Pharaoh, who thinks of himself as a god. Now, Pharaoh in this story is not quite on the par with a Stalin or a Hitler later on, or even the later on Pharaoh who enslaves people and murders people, babies, and, and uh, rejects God. There's, there's some sense in which he's not there the sort of person you probably do have to oppose. But if you're going to put in a modern equivalent is Pharaoh and Egypt at that point were more like a modern Western government working for a secular government or any firm or company whose aim is power and money and whose values are not ultimately aligned with the kingdom of God. And yet Joseph works for them. He seeks the welfare of them. They're flourishing. They're shalom. You know, he, he's, he's kind of pulled up out of the prison to interpret Pharaoh's dream, and so maybe he just does that, but then he's like, you know, he could have just said, like, all right, I'm out now, because hopefully you guys starve to death. Because I've been through a lot over the past 13 years in your country, and I don't like any of you. But he works for their welfare and well-being. And he doesn't, you know what's interesting? He doesn't explicitly evangelize them. When asked, how did you interpret that? He's like, or he's like God. I'll be honest, God. Which is what Jamie Winship did when asked, how did you do that? And he was like, you're not going to like how I found the kid. <laughs> but it was God. But Joseph is also wise. He doesn't use the specifically Hebrew term for God. He uses Elohim, which is what everyone called God, and he doesn't use Yahweh, the covenant name of God that would have offended Pharaoh. Interesting. But as he's living out his career, he obeys God first. That's why he does not commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. It's why he does things with humility and generosity and equity as he's carrying out his role, and he's serving the common good. The theology of work project goes on to say, if we ever have the impression that God wants us in the workplace only so we can tell others about him, Joseph's work says otherwise. The things we make and do in our work are themselves crucial to God and other people. So what does this have to do with our work, with your work? Well, you can hear some of it, right? But I think one of the starting places for any career, any work that you're doing, whether you are a student or a homemaker, or you work in a law firm, or you have a small business, or you're a teacher, is we have to think through what is our posture as Christians towards the culture around us, whether that is our, our nation's culture, our community's culture, the work culture that we're in. Your posture towards the culture will shape your view of your life and your work and how you approach it. 
In his book, To Change the World, James Davison Hunter notes the several ways in which Christians throughout the years have postured themselves towards culture. One is a defensive posture towards culture, in which we just critique the culture around us or seek to gain power so we can rule and conquer the culture ourselves. Another is withdrawal, avoidance, live apart from the culture so that we don't get contaminated but don't ever care about influencing the culture. A third is assimilation. When Christians just accept the values and aims and commitments of the culture around them and cease to be distinctly Christian. What Hunter argues for is the term faithful presence, where he says, enter every field, every field, to serve with the gifts God has given you, the opportunities that are before you, but in faithful service to God first. In a way of approaching this, Missy Wallace, the director of Global Faith and Works Initiative in New York City, said that Christians can approach any job and think about their heart, the community around them, and the world at large. Within your heart, it is to seek and serve God in the work that you're called into, and to recognize that all work, whether it is mowing the grass and changing a diaper, or running payroll, or doing a sales call, all work sanctifies us. It's hard, challenges us, reminds us of our selfishness, is a part of how God moves us to be more and more made into the image of Christ that we're called to be. God uses them to shape us and draw us to trust Him and not be anxious. And ultimately, all of our work is an opportunity, secondly, not just heart, but in community because we're called into relationships with one another in this world co-workers, our clients, competitors? How are we to be Christ to them? But also, maybe even within an organization, is there change that maybe you have the agency to affect, to push back the effects of darkness, to better the community that you're in, in your school, your workplace? And then it's, of course, the world, heart, community, world. How does our work push back the effects of the fall, bring order and fruitfulness to our organization, to the wider world. God uses Joseph's faithful presence to benefit others, including the Egyptians, to save his own family, which he couldn't have expected, and as part of his plan of redemption, to send Israel and its nation into Egypt in order to bring them out in redemption from slavery, pointing to the second Joseph and the ultimate redemption that comes in Christ Jesus. Your work matters to God. Therefore, it is on us to think out the implications of the gospel and its counter values and God's intention for creation as a whole within your workplace. Everyone should do that in their own workplace, in their own jobs. I mean, just to think about it in in kind of picking a couple of them, if your job or work is in research and development, you are actually doing some of that initial Genesis 1 and 2 work of creating and building and cultivating the land, and in a sense, trying to spread the garden. I guess sales and marketing are sort of doing that as well. But they're also relational and creative and trying to figure out ways to increase the fruitfulness of the garden that they are called to tend. If you're in operations, HR, finance, you're bringing order for the common good. Any and all work can fulfill the cultural mandate 
can be a part of what God is going to do. If you work in legal contracts and it's about the acquisition of, of you know, one multi-million dollar company by another multi-hundred million dollar company, you might think, what does this have to do with what God is doing in the world? Well, in cultures where contracts have to be established legally and both parties are obligated to fulfill something, it actually benefits the customer like me, the consumer who goes into a business and recognizes like I pay for something, I should get something in return and there's legal ramifications if they're cheating or lying to me. It benefits the widow who knows that her land is not just going to be taken over by an evil person who is more powerful than her. The work the International Justice Mission does talks about places where the rule of law does not exist. When you're establishing contracts at this macro, even multi-million dollar level, you're creating a trickle-down effect of justice and rule of law that benefits the poor, the weak, and the average person. You're a part of what God is doing. Even washing dishes, right? When I wash dishes, I'm taking chaos and bringing order and beauty to the kitchen. It's increasing the flourishing and common good of my family, and it sanctifies me. It sanctifies me because I hate washing dishes, and when I wash them, I'm reminded of how selfish I am. It also keeps me from sin. You know, when I'm washing dishes, I'm not committing adultery or murdering somebody. Literally, if you're actually doing work, you're going to have a hard time sinning. Do your work. All right, we're long here. The whole story begins in a garden, but it ends in the city. The whole story of creation begins in a garden in Genesis 1 and 2, but it ends in the city of New Jerusalem. God's kingdom coming down in the restoration of creation. Will there be work in heaven? Yes, yes. Some of the images of that are Isaiah 60 and 65. Isaiah 60 talks about the cedars of Lebanon, so it's the kind of woodwork of Lebanon being brought into the New Jerusalem, and the ships of Tarshish or Spain delivering all sorts of goods of the world. So there's ships delivering and transporting things. There, there's wood. There's also in Isaiah 65 the idea that you will build houses, construction, and live in them, and plant vineyards and eat of them. So there's food production and agriculture. And all of this is talked about again in Revelation 21, that the commerce of the world is brought into the city. The goods that are really good will exist, even if the people who created them and built them years ago were not good and did not love God. The final vision of the new Jerusalem is not just a city filled with God and his people. It is also of redeemed human culture too. The implication of this, and N.T. Wright talks about this in his books on uh, eternity and the resurrection, are that some of the things we build or the business models we develop or the organizational structures we implement will last forever. Maybe not looking exactly the same as Jesus' resurrected body didn't look exactly the same, but not entirely different either. Final imagery or story to think about is this, and it's um, borrowing this from N.T. Wright and his books on these things, is if you go back to the medieval ages when they built cathedrals, cathedrals often took 40 to 150 years to build. There were architects and designers who had all of these plans, but often far away up against the mountains of stone, there were stonemasons who, who maybe got an order to cut a stone that is three foot by three foot by three foot, spend a week or two getting it, and then it gets shipped off, and then you do it again. A stonemason 
who is a part of the process of building a cathedral that took 50 or 100 years to build, would probably never have seen the cathedral that he was a part of building. He would have spent his whole life just chiseling a rock. And if somehow he was able to see the finished product, he would have stood there being like, I never knew. There's my stone, another one of mine. Wow. The beauty, the grandeur of what God was building in your life, through your life, you will probably never see the fullness of it. But you were called to cut the stone, to build it in the place that you have been planted. Let's pray. God, we do not have eyes to see the fullness of what you are doing in the restoration of creation, the establishing of your kingdom. But you have called us to live out our purposes, your purposes for us in this world through our work and our vocations, our family and friendships, our neighborhoods, raising children, caring for one another, and in work, from mowing and washing dishes to setting forecasts financially and establishing contracts and serving food. God, give us eyes and hearts to see that you want to work through us and through that reveal yourself to us in this world. Amen. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. Oh
Christ. 